Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. It is Parshat Tazria. This week we are in the book of Leviticus. What does Tazria talk about? It talks about skin diseases. It talks about leprosy, right? Um, it is not leprosy. It is not Hansen's disease because people recover from Tazria. Um, they do not recover from Hansen's disease. So we know that this is not leprosy. The translation is left as leprosy so that we have the ooh effect that people had to the contamination of Tazria. The, the disease is tsara'at, and tsara'at was on the skin, but tsara'at could also be on the walls of a home and on cloth. So the same thing that would cause your skin to become white with an affection in it could also happen to the walls of a home and to fabrics. So um, for them, probably there's a link between what discolors the walls and what discolors right, the skin. So tzarat is what this whole parsha deals with, tazria, and next week, mitzorah. Mitzorah is the person who contracts tzarat. So the mitzorah... Uh, we deal with the laws of how to bring the mitzorah back into the machaneh, back into the camp, because while someone is afflicted with tzara'at, they are removed from the camp. Because the concern was so great around its spreading, right, around contamination. That sounds like psoriasis. So, so you know, I've learned this partial with dermatologists. I mean, it's... Yes, it's quite fascinating. So, um, so that's our parsha this morning. It is also Shabbat Chodesh. So, it is Rosh Chodesh. What is Rosh Chodesh? The new moon, right? So, if you look into the sky tonight, you will see a very, very, very small moon, right? Because the new moon is the sliver, right? Of a moon, and it is the, what is the Chodesh, what is the month now? Nisan. Nisan. Nisan is the month in which Pesach happens, right? All right, so we're going to look at something interesting about that this morning. This is, because it is Rosh Chodesh, there is a special Torah reading. The Math, there's a Hunk, usually the maftir, that is read on Rosh Chodesh. But it is also Shabbat HaChodesh. It is the Shabbat of the month. What is the month? Of liberation. Of liberation. Thank you, Sarah Moskowitz. Shabbat HaChodesh. It is the Rosh Chodesh of the month which is the month of our liberation from Egypt. And, as we're going to see, in at least one of the biblical calendars, it is the first month of the calendar. So Nisan becomes the first month. Where do we have the first month now? Tishrei. 
in the fall. But, but there right, remains in the Torah a second system that has the new year beginning in Nisan, begins in the month of our liberation, and it is the beginning, right? And that makes some sense. If you are living in a culture that looks around at the world, when would you say the world is beginning? In the spring. So why don't we use this one? Why do we use the Tishrei? Somebody want to answer, Judith? Why do we begin our year in Tishrei if this system seems to make perfectly good sense? Lynn? Aha, uh-huh, which is you know, anymore. I'm like, I'm not sure mine does, but I totally. And based on a prior teaching, illustrious, illustrious Rabbi Amy, that we would layer on our own traditions to things that were happening where we were, and that was the month of the crowning rededication of the king. And so we crown and dedicate. Four stars for Lynn. And where did you put your key? <laughs> we have always been influenced by the cultures among who we were living. At the Babylonian exile, we are living in Babylonia. Where is Babylon? Right? It is roughly Iraq. Right? All, all that stuff. So we are in Babylonia. In Babylonia, the, the culture, the religious culture celebrated a festival of a coronation of the king every year in the fall. And so the Jews had already a system where the year began in the fall. And so because we were living right among people who did that, we too crown God as king every year in the fall. Very interesting. If this, is it also agricultural beginning and planting in the fall? You're planting in spring. We have harvests, right? What What's the harvest here in the spring? What's the harvest? Yeah, but what's the harvest? What are we harvesting? Wheat. So your staple, your staple grain is being harvested as a result of spring activity. Could this be connected, Rosh Hashanah, in the fall? With Yom Kippur, which to some extent is a spiritual restarting and liberation. You're kind of cleansing yourself of your sins and rebeginning. And then Tishrei would be the first of that month. Or is that too far stretched? It's pretty far stretched. (laughs) Because Yom Kippur was, as we remember, Yom Kippur was tied to Sukkot. Mm -hmm. Yom Kippur and Sukkot were the tie-in. Rosh Hashanah was nothing. Rosh Hashanah was the day you blew the shofar to say, remember, this is the month that Yom Kippur is coming so that we can be cleansed of everything for the big old party that's coming at the fall harvest. So do we blow the shofar under the shofar being blown at this time? So we're told to to sound shofar, Yom Tru'ah. We are, t- we are told to sound the shofar in Rosh Chodesh of the month in which Yom Kippur is coming. But what does Torah tell us? How does Torah say, what's the exact quote? You hear it every year. I read it every year. And they're like, yeah, like we remember anything you say. From <laughs> <laughs> then, ever, right? So, um, tik'u b'chodesh shofar, you shall blow, tik'u b'chodesh shofar, you hear Chaim sing it every year. But it's in the 10th month. 
that look at your machzor this year. Look at the English. I'll read it again, and I'll look at all of you and go, here we go. So it says, right, in the 10th month. So even in that system, even in the system that says blow shofar on this Rosh Chodesh, it's not the beginning of the year. It's the 10th month of the year. Yeah? All right. So, it, so there was no connection to New Year when we're told to blow shofar. It is blown as a wake-up call because Yom Kippur is coming, and you need to get ready for Yom Kippur so that you can go to Sukkot and have a really good time because you've cleaned everything up with everybody and with God. Both of those calendars, though, were on lunar, a lunar calendar, right? Well, it's a mix. If it were not a mix, we would, we would have what the Muslims have, which is Ramadan moving all over the calendar. It is, this calendar is rectified by the solar calendar. So it's a mix. So it's not a true lunar calendar because then everything would be off by a day, uh-huh. you know, like during cycles. And so then eventually things would, Pesach would wind up being in the summer. So we're off by a month, really, that gets put in. Yes, so we so it's rectified with putting in a second month of Adar every so often. We are in that month now, which is why we're splitting Tazria and Mitzorah. Tazria and Mitzorah are generally read together. We're splitting them because we added four Shabbatot. When you add a month, you add four Shabbases, and you need a Parsha to read on each one of those. So we double four Parshiot during most years when it's a leap year. We have four, we separate them out, and we read them separately. There's a wonderful expression, bloom where you are planted. And I think that's kind of what we've done for centuries. And we the calendar's a good example of We it. certainly do. Bloom where we're planted, yes? All right, so that's what's happening today. There's a lot going on. Um, Liturgically, there's a lot going on with Torah. So what we're going to do today is we are going to not do leprosy. <laughs> See what I did there? See what I did there? When did leprosy right. become handsome? By setting this up, gives me some legitimacy to do a different test. <laughs> when, did le- when did leprosy become Hansen's disease? Are they the same? Yes. When leprosy is Hansen's disease. Okay. Are we not, we don't say leprosy anymore? Like we don't say mongoloid, we say Down syndrome. Um, I, think, I think leprosy is still used. Um, but but because, of the, because of the stigma, you know, people, but, but not everyone knows that Hansen's disease is, lepro- like I think leprosy is still the more common term. Yeah? Sure. How do I talk about this with a kid? Yeah, we have an adult bat mitzvah happening tomorrow, and she was oh so pleased when she looked because we gave her a date. You know, we had, we don't have a lot of dates available, and so a year ago, whatever, we gave her that one of the only open dates for a bat mitzvah, and. So then she gets to the Torah and opens it and finds out she's got Tazria. 
as for Parsha, um, and so she talks about that in her speech, you know, that, like, wait, what? Like, no wonder there's no bar mitzvah happening today. Who wants to talk to a 13-year-old about skin diseases and checking for, and, you know, the hair, if it's white, and, you know, the, so, um, what do we talk about? So, in general, at Tazria, I talk about the fact that even though the person was removed from the camp, it is the priest who continues to check on the person and continues to decide, is it gone, is it not gone, right? Um, so even though they are removed because of the fear of contamination, they are not forgotten. They are not, they are not, they're not removed from the communal awareness that they deserve care and attention and that it's temporary. Um, and then there's a huge ritual to bring them back into the camp. And it's the priest you know, who says, okay, it's gone. And, and then you're going to cleanse, you're going to do mikvah, you're going to you know, wash your clothes, you're going to do all those things. And then there's a, a ritual, a public ritual done to bring that person back into regularity. So what did you talk about? <laughs> so, so what I ask 13-year-olds is, what are some of the things that make people go, ew, right? For them, it was, it was tzara'at, leprosy. For, what is it today? Because it hasn't gone away, right, our reaction and our stigmatization of things that freak us out. Um, and so what, what is it today, right? And, and they, you know, so of course, at once upon a time, it was HIV, right? 100% once upon a time. You know, people wouldn't play with kids. They wouldn't let their kids play with kids who were HIV positive. Um, huh? So people who, and they, they, they quickly come up with people who have deformities, people who are different, people who are very seriously on the spectrum, Right, who act in ways that are upsetting to many people uh, around them. Um, what I often identify is people who are bald and wearing scarves because it's clear they're being treated for cancer. Right? I mean, I think people kind of go. I mean, they, we know it's not contagious, but there's there's a sense of the, it just triggers all kinds of fear. Um, and so we we talk a lot about that, and then we talk about okay, so the priest used to bring that person back after dealing with tzara'at, right? So what, what are the ways that we, we, we don't have good ways to bring people back after an experience? And some things are permanent, obviously, if we're talking about deformities or we're talking about you know, being on the spectrum, obviously those are, those are permanent. So A, how do we deal with our desire to shun or not have to deal with or not have to confront or not have to look at that? How do we deal with that? Um, and then when it is temporary, something like, let's say someone gets a cancer diagnosis, goes through treatment, and now they're clear, we have no way to bring that person back into a sense of, okay, I'm done. I'm done with that. I'm done with being a cancer patient. There's no marking of the fact that this person's, A, been through something tra traumatic and otherizing, and that now it's time to return to regularity and to have some way of making that a sacred process. Why we we, we don't do it? have it. Why can't we do it? I, I 100%, and I say this every time we study Tazriyas, and, and we're going to look at it next week. We're going to look at that ritual next week of Mitzorah, 
And um, and I say it all the time. Like we, I, I wish we had some energy going towards figuring out ways to publicly bring people back into right a sense of okay, I'm done with that. After a death, we bring them back in. We have a ritual for lost babies, for uh, stillborn babies, or premature or miscarriages. Thank you. But but this one seems so important. But I don't think most people know that. I don't think most people have an access to any kind of ritual around miscarriage. None. No. There's nothing that happens. Yeah. Well, but publicly, we nothing. Here. Lion Crying in Boston. Uh, I know that they have created women have come for specific reasons, and they have worked with them to create beautiful mixed ceremonies for the end of a marriage, for the end of cancer treatment. So there is a movement. Right, right. And it's not public. That's the other piece. And I'm not saying it's wrong or bad or shouldn't happen. I'm saying I, one of the things I, that I find so powerful about the ritual of the mitzorah is that it was public. The priest brought this person and said, in front of the community, I'm performing this ritual that makes you now, right, a regular member of the community again. And there's something, I think, really powerful about having that public statement. I mean, every time we do something publicly in the sanctuary on a Friday night, there's a, there's a weight and a power to it that I feel, right, is really important. There's a communal aspect. We just blessed, you know, a couple that went with us to Israel on their 50th anniversary. You know, they both cried through the whole thing. Like, why? It's the same priestly benediction we do all the time. Because there's something about having the community witness this. I think it's a great idea. Bryce, I'll call you, and we're going to get together, and we're going to we're going to figure it out. And then you can do your bat mitzvah speech <laughs> at that time. We're going to say, and now we'll be hearing from Linda Scheibel, the bat mitzvah. Right. You need to be assured that it's not harmful to you. That right. So it's it's the acknowledgement by the community. Like we we also have moved past identifying you as a mitzvah. Bringing back into regularity, which is a theme all through. Um, we have a little bit of what Lynn suggested at the KI High Holiday Service, where there's a communal aliyah for people for all kinds of categories, and one of them is usually having, you know, overcome something, but it's not for one person, it's for a group of people, but it's in that same... Yeah, I think we struggle more with it at Westwood. Mm -hmm. I think we just struggle more with how big and how formal that service is. Um, Here, I think there's a lot of room that, like you said, stuff is already happening, um, and it's just a lot harder when you've got people in theater seats, and they have to climb over people to come, it's just, you know what I mean, it's just, 
harder. So I'm, I'm very aware that different spaces lend themselves. And I want to say also that AJU, the mikvah at AJU, for all of you to know and all of you listening at home, um, that there is a mikvah here in Southern California in Los Angeles, AJU, where they welcome you to call and find a, a time for mikvah, and you can do mikvah for any for anything, just because you feel like it. Um, but if you, you know, it it could be at least privately this moment of okay, I'm I'm done with something, I'm past something, a loss, a divorce, an illness, and and you can do mikvah at AJU, and it's a lovely, beautiful, beautiful experience. And I would be honored to go with anybody who uh, wants it. So I think that Bench and Gomel is one of the ways that we that we have a regular time and place to acknowledge that something's happened because we don't say what it is, right? right? When we bench Gomel, you're called to the Torah if you have escaped danger of some kind. Um, And so if you travel on a really long trip, tradition would be you would bench Gomel when you got home because traveling was so dangerous always, particularly really far away. So you would bench Gomel when you came home. So then once, you bench, once you're called to Torah and you bench Gomel and you sit down, of course, everybody around you is like, what happened? <laughs> right? So, so it's a way of kind of publicly acknowledging there's been something, even though we're not saying what it is. Um, the same way when, when we had the festival, the pilgrimage festivals, people would go to the temple Yes? They would go to the temple and you went in one way and out the other way. You went in one gate, up the stairs inside the temple compound, and you came out a different gate, unless you were in mourning, in which case you went in the out gate and back through this way. So you're crossing everybody, you're going the wrong way. And it was a way to identify people who were in mourning so that no one skips up to you who hasn't seen you since the last pilgrimage festival and says, you look fabulous. You've lost so much weight. What's going on? Uh, well, I didn't eat for three months because my spouse died. Right? So, um, so it was a way to prevent all that awkwardness and to identify those in mourning. And that's why we say to people who are in mourning, may you be comforted among... Shot, right? in the gates of the mourners of the people Israel because you would go through the gate as a mourner what is the literal meaning of Gomel somebody want to get a prayer book Mila does that have to do with not saying to, in a sense, granting me something that I didn't deserve? That I don't know. But Fine. Bert's going to look it up. All right. We, okay. Now go to your sheets that I put in front of you. Oh, and then, then I usually tell you that, um, that at the rabbi convention where we have a Saturday night good time Uh, and we find ourselves hilarious by the way rabbis are very smart people often and we find ourselves hilarious and so we do like these little 
evenings of whatever. And so um, one year we had everybody do like a little sketch or a spoof or a whatever who wanted to. And one of my colleagues got up um, singing as the bar mitzvah, Tazria, I've gotten the Parsha Tazria. And we all fell out. We thought that was hilarious. One of those jokes that nobody else in the world would laugh at. Um, so, yes. So, to, to Bert's point, is it Gomel is about bestowing. So, who has bestowed on me, Chayavim Tovim, good things, Shigamalni Koltov, who has bestowed on me only good. And as God has Gamal Chatov, has bestowed on you good, so may God continue to do that for you. And there's a congregational response. That's the so congregational right, response. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's back and forth. Correct. What is that book you were looking at? So That's the prayer book. Oh, okay. Just Kol HaNeshama. And it gave the definition? It gave the English. <laughs> Which it tends to do on some prayers. We get the English so that we know what we're saying. That's so funny. All right, so let's look at our paper from the teaching from Rabbi Mark Margolius of the Institute of Jewish Spirituality. And he talks about this triple header that we're in, right, of of Torah readings in that first paragraph. And then the last sentence of that paragraph, to help us begin preparing for Pesach a few weeks hence, the special Torah reading designated for Shabbat HaChodesh, which we have just learned, right, is the Shabbat of Rosh Chodesh Nisan, is drawn from a section of Parshat Bo, which is in Exodus, just before God inflicts the tenth and final plague upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So every Shabbat HaChodesh Every Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, Nisan, we read from Exodus the commandment that happens that we're going to see just before the tenth and final plague, right? Because that happens just before the Exodus. In this passage, God provides Moses with instructions for how the Israelites are to prepare themselves for their birth as a free people. They are to consider the new month, the beginning of months, the first month of their year. On the 10th of the month, the 10th of this month of Nisan, each household is to take a lamb without blemish, sharing the animals equitably according to the size of each household. So depending on how big your house is, is whether or not you joined with another house to eat the Paschal lamb. Each household must watch over these Paschal lambs until dusk on the 14th, just in case we forgot that. The lamb was taken and tied in the backyard on the 10th. You watched over it until the 14th, which is Pesach. It's the full moon of Pesach, of the full moon of the month of Nisan. All harvest festivals happen on a what kind of moon? Full moon. Why? So they could see. Very good. Oh, I love it when like, the teaching sticks. All right. So each household must watch over the Paschal lamb until dusk on the 14th of the month when they are to slaughter them. We have studied this before, this night of screaming, this night of terror, this night of blood and death. Um, and they are to spread the blood of the offering on the doorposts and lintel of their homes and consume them as part of a ritual meal. This is the, the holiday of Pesach. This is not Chag Hamatzot. 
We have two holidays, Chag HaPesach and Chag HaMatzot. This is the, the festival of Pesach, of the Paschal Lamb. Added to that is a seven-day festival called Chag HaMatzot, the festival of Matzah. Okay? Ah, remember now? Lambing in the spring, wheat harvest, no sourdough if you're starting new grain, semi-nomadic pastoralists, agricultural, right? Okay. So we're looking only right now at Chag HaPesach, this whole ritual of Pesach. Which is not what we call Pesach. Which is not what we call Pesach. We call Pesach the whole thing. This is why I'm making the distinction, because this is very much its own holiday, its own ritual, its own story, its own thing that has nothing to do with we didn't have time. So we ran with our baskets, and somehow that made matzah. I'm still not sure of like how that happens, but okay. So um, I mean, you still have to bake it. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. So they, um, but so this is Chag HaPesach. All right. So here we get the commandment. Bert, you want to read? They shall take the blood and put it on the two side posts and on the lintel upon the houses in which they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast with fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roast it, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. All right. So you take of the blood and you put it on the doorposts and the lintel. You will eat it that night, the whole thing. Right? Remember, if you sacrifice, you can't eat it outside of the sacred precinct. You have to eat it at the temple, right? So you, and some of some sacrifices have to be eaten right away. There can't be any leftover. So this is one of those where it's going to be eaten the whole thing. Go on. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to Yudhebavah. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I Yudhebavah. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, this is the commandment that we are given in Egypt. We are still slaves. We have not been given Torah. This is the only commandment we're given until Har Sinai. Except circumcision. Right, Abraham was given circumcision. And and we're going to see there's some commentators that say circumcision is given at this same time. Do you have any opinions about a seder? Probably. <laughs> about a seder that is vegetarian? It is a there very, no very good question. Very good question. So we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the taboo around anything having to do with the temple ritual, that some people don't eat lamb on Pesach because it's a little too close to the idea of sacrifice, right? That, and we can't do sacrifices anymore because there's no temple. Um, and so it, it seems to be on both ends of that spectrum. If you get too close to this Pesach business, it's like, we shouldn't do that. Um, but if you get too far from it, 
does it change the meaning of the Passover Seder, right? So, so to your question, do I have an opinion? Am I attached to eating brisket at Seder? Yes, <laughs> right? Yes, but, but is that because I grew up with it and Mama Faye made the best brisket in the whole universe ever? Yeah. Probably, right? And so also we tie meat to, for those of us who eat meat, meat is like the fanciest, highest. You, you, made, you, you, you waited to kill your chicken until it was Shabbos, and if you couldn't afford it for Shabbos, you saved it for Pesach, right? You, know, you, you, you got your most expensive food item, which was generally animal, um, and served it at the meal. I don't think there's really actually a tie to eating meat at the holiday that's not about Pesach, that's not about the Paschal lamb. Like, we have the shank bone on the plate, right? right? So for me, a vegetarian Seder is, is just kind of schwach. <laughs> okay. Right, because right? it's kind of like, oh, okay, this is delicious. You know, an, another way to do beans, lovely. Um, but <laughs> at, at RRC, all of our potlucks, you know, were veggie dairy. I'm like, really? Really? Really, if it's kosher meat, can't we do one that's a barbecue? Like, and just don't bring any dairy. Like, why does it always have to be veggie dairy? So they were all brown. Um, so the, the, for me, the, the tie really is what, what's fanciest. Like, what is our best meal? And that's what we want at Seder. For vegetarians, I'm sure they would do their most fancy you know, a lot of vegetarian food that's really good, you have to potchke a lot, right? And so you have to chop a lot and saute a lot, and right? And so, um, so I would imagine at a vegetarian Seder, you would have your best, most flavorful, most amazing dishes there. And for them, I would imagine it does not in any way compromise the experience. And the opposite for them, they would say... It, it is uplifting and a value for them that they, A, are not killing another being to have their festive, holy, sacred experience. And I bet it would tie into the environment as well. You're lucky today. I know, right? <laughs> so, um, and I'm, I was teasing about beans. Like I, vegetarian food is delicious. It's it, it is an intergenerational challenge for sure. And this is why when we've talked in here about kashrut, and we talked, you know, last week at Shemini, we talked a little bit about kashrut, and we talked about eating practices, they still are incredibly powerful. So much so that if you have different eating practices at the same table, it can become very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right? When, you, when you're serving brisket and there's a vegetarian sitting at the table, it's, I'm always very aware that I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know what I mean? I'm just more aware that I'm putting beast in my mouth and chewing, and right? It just it, and it can be seriously disruptive when there's judgment mm-hmm. around any of it, and it does make it an intergenerational experience because often, right? It's generational the differences in, in values around food and consumption and eating and all of that. Um, it, it can make it very, very challenging. Very challenging. Um, all right. So, so why is lamb not the traditional Passover? So we were talking about the, the taboo of it getting too close to feeling like imitating the sacrifice when we can't have sacrifice anymore because there's no temple and no priesthood. And e- even though this commandment was given in Egypt, but it was only supposed to happen once. in Egypt that once, right, this night. All right. So what's happening on this night? You're going to eat it how? 
with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So you've got your backpack on. You have your carry-on right beside you. You've got your walking stick, right? You've got, Judy just got walking poles. It's like, you, know, you got your poles, you got your back, but you've got your carry-on. You're supposed to eat it hurriedly because you're supposed to eat it as if you actually believe you're getting out. You're leaving because the entire power structure says, no way. It is not possible that you are going to change the entire socioeconomic structure of the most powerful empire in the known universe. What? Right? So, because that's crazy. Right? You're following the crazy guy? Right? So that's exactly how you're supposed to eat this. I'm with crazy. <laughs> I was also thinking during this night of horror and death that maybe we shouldn't be having a sumptuous meal and relaxing and enjoying this beautiful lamb that we probably rarely have. I'm currently reading the first chapter of a book. Um, because someone referenced it last year in our Pesach seminar, and I'm just getting to it now. But it says, um, it's the first chapter of this book is called Longing for Egypt. And it's talking about um, this as not so much a liberation story as a story of forming our identity as a nation uh, and a people. But aside from that, the point, one of the points she's making is if you're focusing on freedom from oppression, a horrible rule, right, you know, blah, blah, suffering, inequity, blah, 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 blah. There has to be an enemy. It requires an enemy. If you're celebrating liberation from, you, you by definition have an enemy. And so it's this, it's this element that is disturbing about celebrating when it necessarily involves somehow the destruction and death of the enemy and that that mix you know this is why we pour out wine you know when we do the 10 plagues because it's a reminder to us we should not be rejoicing in the death of the Egyptians so much as we're celebrating our liberation and redemption from slavery but you can't you can't disengage them you can't pull them apart we want to and we try with these little rituals or whatever but but really you can't and that is just the reality of having a story of freedom from other people oppressing us. Whenever you have that story, you have an enemy. And you have to deal with the enemy. What she does say is, though it's interesting, um, that nowhere does Egypt... We've labeled it on in our reading of Torah for many centuries, but nowhere does it make Egypt the permanent enemy. Who is Amalek? Fascinating, right, that... It's less about Egypt. And what was our suffering in Egypt, really? We don't know. Like, uh, their lives were hard. You know, so, um, but Amalek is seen as kind of the embodiment of, of evil and of, um, of doing something to us that was heinous and to be remembered for all time. Whereas we don't really talk about Egypt. We talk more about the liberation and more about redemption. I was just uh, getting back to the point you made about Pesach in a way not being celebratory for various reasons. 
But I, I never saw it that way because it, it sounded in the passage that Burgess read like uh, it isn't a celebratory dinner. It's get prepared not just to leave, but to fight your way out. <laughs> the gird your loins thing sounded to me like it could get really ugly. And you, that didn't sound like a dinner party to me. <laughs> um, but for most of us, I would wager we grew up with it being a celebratory dinner, right? You know, like it. It's a. Yeah, not right. Hundred, hundred percent. That's what was being. Hundred percent. It wasn't. It wasn't. What? Hundred percent. The seder is rabbinic. The Seder is rabbinic. It is not biblical. The only thing that's biblical is this and eating matzah and staying away from leaven. That's the only thing that's biblical. Everything else is rabbinic. The rabbis came up with a festive meal. The rabbis modeled the Seder meal on what? The Romans and how wealthy Romans ate. Wealthy Romans had lots of appetizers way before the the main course. This is why we eat all that junk before the brisket, right? Is is because that's what the Romans did. You you eat it reclining, because that's how Romans ate. They ate on couches or on pillows, reclining to, and they were served. So of course it's Jewish women who serve, right? So the seder dates from when? I always heard like that the Last Supper was probably a Seder, which would put it before the common era. So it's not to say that they didn't mark the the okay. festival of Pesach with a meal. Mm-hmm. It's that our Haggadah, the you know the ritual, all the things we walk through, that's rabbinic, responding to the culture that they lived in. And for them, think about it, because this is also where her book is going. What does it mean? They were living under. Occupation. Yeah. It, it began with Maxwell House. Yeah. <laughs> so the rabbis who create this are living under, under, uh, what did I just say? Occupation. Occupation. So it's fascinating to me. I'm just, I'm relating to Pesach. Like, it just, I'm very curious. I don't know what I'm thinking yet, but I'm, you're hearing the incohate whatever, which is, if you're, if you're occupied and you're trying to mark your distinction and you're talking about freedom from, on some level, isn't it then a focus on the liberation? Because we're actually wanting liberation. We don't have it. Does this make sense? So how does it get turned into a celebration of liberation and freedom? By the rabbis who didn't have it. Who values freedom the most? The people who don't have it. The people who are afraid that Rome could turn at any moment. Oh, and guess what? It did. Right? It tur- Rome turned and burned Jerusalem to the ground and exiled the people who were left. So that's what, right, the Hadrianic persecutions, Rabbi Akiva getting his flesh torn from his body while he's alive, this was real. All of this was happening. And now you're going to talk about the liberation from Egypt. We were slaves and now we're free. No, we're not. Who has the biggest party about freedom? Just saying. Just saying, right? 
We always assume, because we do it in America, that we're celebrating our freedom and liberation and redemption, and yes, we are, but, but the people who created the ritual, in a, in a sense, were not. We, we read that onto them, because we are truly free in many ways, right? But you... But the people who created this ritual of Seder and created the Haggadah and created eating maror, many of them were wealthy, I'm sure, and had really good lives. But as Jews, they were always in danger. That's who created this liberation evening. I find that fascinating. I've never really thought about that before, right? That, that they, didn't, they didn't have the kind of freedom that we have to express themselves as Jews and to practice Judaism and to feel like they could be safe to do that. Um, is there any way I can feel better about killing the firstborn? No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, it's a tough one. It's a really tough one. Yeah. It's a really, 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 really and tough one. And you're at your table with your children and it's like... So if, yeah. and we don't do this, and here's why we don't do it, if we read the Megillat Esther from the beginning to the end, what happens at the end? Does anybody know? The Jews slaughter the people of Shushan. The Jews murder the citizens of Shushan who wanted to murder them. Why is that the end of the book of Esther? Because whoever's writing the story, whoever's oppressed and writing the story has a fantasy about the destruction, right, to the enemy, the suffering of the enemy. This is what we were just talking about. There's got to be suffering and destruction of the enemy for us to have freedom from their oppression. And do we like it? No. But it's always there as a complicating factor. Always. And it's a fantasy, right? We're not saying this actually happened and I need to deal with that. I don't believe this happened. I believe it's a story written by people who had some kind of trauma, right, and had a fantasy of revenge. And that's what human beings do. So that, I mean, that's how I live with the story is, well, of course, you know, of course something horrible has to happen to the enemy that did something horrible to you. That's, that's, what, that's human nature, right, is to fantasize about that. What, I'm sure, you know, there was fantasies about Nazis, having something horrible happen to them in their home, like Jews who are being tortured. I mean, it's just kind of human nature, and so I just kind of hold it as part of the complication of being human and dealing with humans oppressing other humans, and then we always have ugliness, right, of of all kinds, or fantasies of ugliness. I I remember a story, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, when the Dalai Lama asked rabbis, what do you Yes. So that's the part I remember hearing, was the answer, was we face Jerusalem for 2,000, because he's saying, how does the people not living in Tibet maintain a connection to Tibet and to the culture and language and ways of Tibet? And Because they don't know how long you're not going to be able to go back, right? And the answer was, because we face Jerusalem. 
We have faced Jerusalem for 2,000 years, and we say, It was aspirational. No one believed it was going to happen, but it was aspirational, a hope, which is interesting that we, do we say that around our tables? Because you have the opportunity right now, people, to move to Jerusalem. What are you saying for? Are you leaving the Palisades? Probably not. Just to visit. So it's always been aspirational. Next year, may the life we live be one. That is what we have always imagined it would be when Mashiach comes and we're all living in Jerusalem with the third temple and everything is finally just and equitable. And crowded, right? So, uh, exactly. And hot. And, right, so, um, so... So it's always been aspirational, but, but that connection, that's, and so yes, sitting around the table saying, becomes the, the way that a people remembers its connection to a land and a language and traditions. It's the way one resists assimilation. That's, that's the key, is how do we not, how do we deal with assimilation? The, the temptations of assimilation. And all the songs of the black churches, too, the aspiration of freedom. Right, who, I saw another hand. Sarah. Yes. The, coming back to the death of the firstborn and this being a story. Yes. The only place I can come, not that it's okay, but it all began, right, with Pharaoh and the death of the firstborn of the Jews. And so at the end, you know, what is the cap of that? The same thing happened to the Yeah, you, you can't ignore that. Before. You cannot right, ignore you know, that. That's 100%. It's not so much literal as it's they got what they deserved. What goes around comes around, right? So, uh, you know, I'm just going to saw a hole under your side of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, and, and we really think that's not going to happen, right? That, that I'm somehow then safe from you know, whatever the repercussion. So um, 100%, you have to read those together, the slaves of the Jewish firstborn with, the, with God because God has to be just God has to be fair so you killed my people's firstborn, firstborn. guess what and you had the opportunity nine times okay. to let them go right. and you didn't alright whatever okay alright here we go poor Rabbi Margolius can't get one word in edgewise here um, alright so the blood goes on the door, verse 13, and the blood will be for you as an oat. Oat is always a good thing. Always. It's always a good thing. Shabbat is an oat. Oat he leolam. She is an oat for you forever. What is it an oat of? It's a wedding ring. 
Shabbat is an oath that we are exclusively together and I love you and you love me, right? And that's the symbol is Shabbat about our love for Be'ahava. We are given it Be'ahava in love. Okay, so, so this oath is always good. So this is an oath, lachem, for you. Al habatim, on the houses, asher atem sam, where you have put it. Vera'iti et adam, and I will see, this is God speaking, I will see the blood, ufasachti alechem, and I will pesach on you. <laughs> okay, so, all right. If you don't know what Pesach means, how is this helpful? <laughs> right? I'm going to... You've got the, the lamb that's Pesach to mark... Why? Because Pesachti. Because I'm going to Pesach on y'all. Okay? So I'm not going to translate it, right? V'lo yebachem negev. Remember, vav is either conjunctive or disjunctive. It's conjunctive here. And there will not be for you plague. Yeah? Lamashchit bahakoti be'eret mitrayim. So that no, there won't be for you plague. Lamashchit, to destroy. Right? Bahakoti be'eret mitrayim. When I plagueify. Mitraim. So the dam goes up as an oat lachem for you, and when I see the blood, I will pesach on y'all. That 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 when I'm plagifying mitraim, there won't be destruction for you. Okay, that's the sense here. All right. So there's this isn't exactly clear. We take it as clear because we read it from Maxwell House every year. Or whatever feminist to are using, whatever. Right? So some of the themes are very interesting, what people have Haggadahs around. But okay. So, um, so that, it, we take it as clear, but it's not at all clear. And this is where Rabbi Margolis is going to go because the rabbis have been arguing about this for thousands of years. When it says that it's going to be a house that's safe from the angel of death, the Malach Hamavet, we're looking at Rabbi Margolius, and that God will pass over, the same verse notes that the blood is intended as an oat, not for God, but for the people themselves. The oat is lachem. The sign is for you. Rashi interprets this to mean, Rashi's our, our most right famous commentator, Rashi interprets this to mean that the blood shall be a sign for you, but not for others. Why does the Torah say lachem for you? There has to be a reason. There's no extra words in the Torah, God forbid. There's no word that doesn't mean something. God wouldn't write it like that otherwise. So why does it say lachem, a sign for you? Meaning a sign exclusively for you, for nobody else. What must that mean? The blood was only to be placed inside the doorposts. That's how we know it's lachem, a sign for you. It was on the inside, not for anyone else to see, just for you to see. Because otherwise, think about it. Door jams were big. Your house is made of mud brick or stone. Your, your door jam is big. If you're talking about putting, putting blood on it, that's a lot of blood if you have to cover 
the whole thing. That's a lot of blood. If you're putting it just as an oat, as a sign, it can be a lot less blood. But then the question is, where, where do you put it? Where's the sign? Inside or outside? Rashi says, lachem means just for you to see, which means it has to be on the inside by definition. He wonders at the idea that God might require the blood to be visible for is not all revealed before God. Right? So Rashi's saying, what, God needs GPS? Or God doesn't have GPS? Like, God knows where the Israelites live. It's chutzpah to suggest. It's heresy to suggest that the blood was for God. God knows where the Israelites live. The sign was for the Israelites. Right? What the Holy One meant was, I will keep an eye out. What's the, what's the seeing about? Because it says, God says, Uraiti, and I will see it. Rashi says, it's that God is saying, I'm going to keep an eye out to make sure you are busy with the one commandment I've given you. One. Are you going to do it? Right? Or if you, right? So that, that, that's what Raiti is about. It's not that, yes, God's going to see the blood. But that's not why the blood goes up is for God to identify Israelite households, God forbid. It's for God to look and see that the Israelites are fulfilling the commandment that is going to merit their redemption. Okay. The verse's ambiguity regarding whether the blood was placed inside the door for the benefit of the Israelites within their homes or the exterior for the attention of the Israelites' Egyptian neighbors is reflected in divergent views of the traditional commentators as we see in this classic midrash. Here we go. This is from uh, this, this midrash is from the Chilta de Rabbi Yishmael, an early source. They shall place it on the two side posts and on the lintel. Here comes the Mechilta de Rabbi, whoever I just said. Uh, Yishmael, who says, on the inside. You say on the inside, but perhaps on the outside is meant. It is therefore written, and I will see the blood. Blood which is seen by me, God, and not by others. That's the proof that it's on the inside of the house. Only God can see it. Right? That's the words of Rabbi Yishmael. Rabbi Natan says, on the inside. You say on the inside, but perhaps on the outside is what's meant. It is therefore written, and the blood will be for you as a sign. For you and not for others. All right, so here's two ways of reading why the blood must be on the inside. Rabbi Yitzchak says, on the outside. How do we know? So that the Egyptians see their gods being slaughtered and their insides being ripped apart. The lamb is out back for four days. Then it's slaughtered and you're gonna, you're gonna burn everything. It's guts, everything. So when the Egyptians see that, what they're seeing is that they're seeing their God be destroyed by Israelites and by the Israelites' God, right? Maimonides explains the ritual. So this is now we're getting Maimonides, Rambam explains the ritual of the lamb and its blood as connected to Egyptian worship of the lamb, whose zodiac symbol, lights go on. What is the zodiac symbol that's, that's being dealt with here? Aries. Because what month are we in? 
I'm born March 21st on the vernal equinox, the best birthday in the world. But so I can tell I'm an Aries. This is the month where the zodiac sign Aries is ascendant, right? So for the Egyptians who worship the sheep, this is the time. This is the month that the sheep god rules. There's no accident that it is a sheep that is supposed to be taken and then slaughtered on this night, a lamb. Yes? Okay. Because the Israelites had adopted this worship. So Rambam is saying it's connected to the Egyptians worshiping Aries at this time of year in this month, but not because the Egyptians do it, but because y'all do it. Y'all participated in believing this is the month when the sheep god is ascendant. You participated in that worship, so you're going to take a lamb, destroy it, take its blood, and put it up as a sign for you. Because it says right there, Lachem, it's a sign for you. What's the sign? Oh, right. What the Egyptians have been worshiping as all-powerful, guess what? We're eating it. We're using its blood as a neon sign that we're with crazy guy who talks to voices, right? So that's how it's a sign for you. You participated and bought into. You assimilated. So now it's a sign for you, Israelites, Jews. All right. The medieval commentator Rabbeinu Bachia explains that God therefore ordered the Israelites to slaughter the lamb and display its blood outside the door to demonstrate to the Egyptians, so this is Bachia, a Spanish commentator, that this animal that they considered their symbol of success could not even protect itself, much less those who worshipped it. Right? So you think the lamb god is the god, the big power that's going to help you and keep you wealthy and keep you safe and ascendant in the world of empires? Guess what? It couldn't even save itself. How can it save you? It's laying dead on my table. And its blood is right up there. How is it going to help you? In contrast to Bachia's emphasis on the intended impact of the blood on the Egyptians, another medieval commentator, Abarbanel, stresses its placement inside the threshold as a sign, for, just in case you think we are not a complicated people. <laughs> inside the threshold, they take some of the blood and put it on the lintel on the two doorposts, since those places behind the door and the doorposts are where they used to put the reminder of the pagan worship in which they used to partake. Now, they're to put the blood that they spilled in order to show the contempt for that and make him angry. And here's why the Torah says, and the blood shall be lachem for you. The sign was for them as testimony to themselves that they would no longer worship sheep gods as they had previously and that they were leaving Egypt because of the hand of the Holy One, right, backing them and doing away with the power of the sheep god. All right, now, what's the point? <laughs> there, there is a point. Yes, there is a point. Rabbi Margolius, as he always beautifully does, brings us to the point. In mindfulness practice, remember he's writing from a mindfulness perspective, so he's going to relate all of this to mindfulness practice. In mindfulness practice, we often notice a natural inclination to judge one possibility as preferable to another. Is it inside or is it outside? 
It may only be upon second glance that we take up the possibility of and, that both have merit. We can thus posit that the blood was daubed both on the inside of the doorposts and lintel for the benefits of the Israelites, to remind them of their commitment to their own authentic identity in opposition to idolatry, as well as on the outside for the benefit of the Egyptians to expose the fallacy of their idolatry, blah, 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 blah or for whatever reasons we want to put in. As Rabbeinu Bachia concludes, the blood itself did not magically keep the plague away. Right? It's God's pasaching that keeps the plague away. It took the Israelites, what, what was the act that helped affect this? It's their bitachon. It is the people's trust and their omets lev, their courage in doing this act, right, that allowed fear to no longer control their words and their actions. They had to step out of fear of the oppressor and act in a way that took incredible bitachon, trust in the other, capital O, as well as omets lev, as well as courage. That is the only way they could move out of oppression and slavery. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.